Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Wurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYourSixCoffee.com where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused the necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country. Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at GotYourSixCoffee.com. Also coming out in July 2019 from Penguin Random House is a book I had the honor of writing the foreword for called Warrior's Book of Virtues, a field manual for living your best life. Combat veterans Nick Bennis, Matt Bloom, and Buzz Bryan share how lessons they learned during their service can help empower you into a life of deep and lasting virtue no matter the obstacles you face. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Jazz Rawlinson. Jazz is an Australian author, speaker, writing coach, and freelance journalist with a passion for empowering trauma survivors to transform their adversities into powerful memoirs. She is also the co-founder of Brisbane's first domestic violence memorial. Jazz authored Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day and the suicide prevention memoir series Reasons to Live. I'm honored Jess took time to join me on this episode of Get Up Nation to share not only her journey of resilience, but her dedication to empowering others as they live theirs. Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here, Ben. It's an honor. First, I want to make sure listeners are aware that we're going to be discussing realities in our world which may not be appropriate for children to hear at this time. And for survivors of abuse and exploitation, I want to ensure that you practice self-care should you listen to this in order to ensure your own health, make sure you're getting any help you need. And if you need to take breaks during listening to this podcast episode, please do so. Okay, Jazz, first off, I just want to thank you for living a life of passion and purpose and for persevering through tremendous challenges you faced as a child. I'm so impressed by you and your work. I've been looking forward to talking with you today to share with Get Up Nation your insights into successfully navigating life after experiencing violence and adversity. You certainly are a powerful voice of resilience and possess a profound understanding of realities that can help others emerge into their finest life after surviving some of the most troubling realities people can face. Will you share where you live and work? Thank you so much, firstly, Ben, for your kind words. Yes, so I'm based in Australia. I live in a town called Brisbane. Um, Some uh, 
people across the other side of the globe may have heard of it. And yeah, I work as a memoir writing coach and a freelance journalist and a mental health speaker. As a child, you lived in a home where your father suffered from mental illness. It led to physical violence in your home against your mother. He was volatile and unpredictable. In your book, you describe incidents where, as a child, you hid in fear in cupboards, not wanting to invite friends over because you would be frequently punished with never-ending lists of chores to do. You heard your mother being physically harmed when you were a child. There were instances where you were ducking under barbed wire fences with your mother and your brother as you fled for safety. Will you share how some of these experiences affected you as a child and what perspective you took on life as a result of some of those traumas you experienced? Well, for me, the very first time I really noticed that this was having an impact on me or really the gravity of the situation was when I was 10 years old. And as I often share when I'm, you know, speaking to audiences, when you're a 10-year-old, you don't have any understanding of mental health. So I, you know, didn't understand that I was suffering from depression or experiencing anxiety or things like that. But from those very early ages, I was constantly on edge. It was like walking on eggshells. I was always afraid of what sort of dad I was going to come home to each day. I could never predict his mood. And I will clarify, he was never physically abusive to me, but it was just the mental and the psychological abuse that really had such a deep impact on me and really tore down my self-esteem and shredded my self-worth in those early years where you're kind of working out who you are in the world and what you have to offer. And it got worse and worse the older I got. And I think he started to lose grip on his mental health further and further. And I just remember by the time I was, say, 17 or 18, that was probably when I was at my worst. And I was really suicidal. I just couldn't see any reason to live. And I couldn't see that there could possibly be anything outside of school that would be of value to the world. So I just had zero self-esteem. It was very difficult. You're an amazing writer. In the book, you describe the feeling of that chronic depression that you were experiencing as a young person. You likened it to, quote, the fog that settled across the paddocks in the morning and the way it shrouded our house in a cold, frosty mist just enveloping and taking over everything. The unmistakable way it devoured the houses along the bumpy dirt road, the mandarin plantations, and the bellowing cattle until nothing remained. You described how bittersweet it was to finally understand the symptoms of what depression was, which gave you a sense of uplift, but then to know that as long as you were in this family environment, which was not going away anytime soon, that there seemed to be no solution. Will you share some of what children experience when they're living in a home where mental health challenges are not being treated and what is that experience like for children? Mm. So like I was saying before when you're a child you have no understanding really of what mental health is. These things may be a little bit better today because we have such a growing awareness of mental health and things like family violence but for me there was zero campaigns back then. You know I, I can sort of only speak for myself in those times where yeah, it just really erodes your, your self-worth and you're, because you're constantly on edge and living with sort of 24-7 anxiety, that has a huge impact on your health as well. So for me, I have a lot of digestive issues these days and ongoing issues with my gut health and all the research that's been coming out over the last 
couple of years or over the last decade has been showing more and more that trauma in childhood has a profound effect on children's gut health, on their mental health, on depression, their ability to build resilience, their ability to cope with stressful situations. And obviously the more severe that abuse is or the longer that it goes on for, the more difficult it can be to navigate some of those things as you get older. So people sometimes don't realise that. The impact of things like family violence on children has a very long-term effect and many children who suffer from severe trauma have a severely increased mortality rate. So they don't tend to live to the ages of, say, adults who, who didn't suffer from severe trauma in their childhood years. So for a child to be in that state, you, you described it as that 24-7 anxiety, that has an effect also in their social development, right? So things that you experienced as you dealt with relationships with other children, you talked about body insecurity, bullying, and, and not wanting your friends to come over to your house, a pressure to excel in your schoolwork. Will you share a little bit on that social interaction of what you experienced as a result of this trauma with peers? As a young girl, I was always quite shy and quite a sensitive child, so I think those things were already kind of ingrained in me. But my dad's abuse definitely had a very strong effect on the way that I socialised and the way that I viewed myself in the world. So I remember I would go to school and I would always collect all the latest surfing magazines and magazines from our local surf store, and all I would do was go through and look at all of the images of these tanned, slim, tall, beautiful models and just go, why don't I look like that? And because one of the early memories I have is of my dad around, I think I was around the age of 10, pointing out my fat rolls and mm. sort of focusing on my fat. I'm always a tiny, you know, quite a tiny person. And back then I was just going through the, you know, puppy fat phase that most people go through when they go through puberty. But that, you know, that's something that I've never forgotten. And so I would go to school and I would look at all the girls around. I weighed like 42 kilos or something when I started high school. But I think I've always struggled with body dysmorphia. And so I could never view great things about myself or positive things about my personality or anything positive about me aesthetically. I couldn't view any of those from a filter of reality. It was so distorted that... I would look at everyone around me and, and go, why aren't I pretty? Why aren't I skinny? just had zero self-worth and that played out in the way that I sort of developed friendships too. I mean, I did have a, a really great group of friends and I'm still friends with a number of those girls today. It's just really shy. I struggled to kind of put myself out there and talk to them sometimes because internally I was constantly thinking, they must think I'm so stupid, they must think I'm so ugly. So it, it had a really big impact. And like you said, sometimes I wouldn't even want to invite my girlfriends over because I knew that if my dad saw me having fun, he would find some way to bring my mood back down and make sure that I was miserable and mm. unhappy. It was just an awful way to live. I mean, I had a beautiful mother and I'm still so close to her and she was always trying to mitigate the damage and trying to keep dad like I say in my book, she was always trying to navigate those Jekyll and Hyde moments with him and mm. try and keep him placid as possible, but it just wasn't possible all the time. He just mm. couldn't control him. When you were 18 years old, your father took his own life. You've described how you experienced a number of different emotions as a result of that experience. You wrote, I think he got to a stage where he truly felt that the only way to free his family from his abuse 
was to take his own life. For anyone who has experienced the death of a loved one by suicide, what was helpful for you as you sought to cope with his loss? Yeah, I mean, for me, really having a really close-knit group of friends who were just there for me whenever I needed someone to talk to. So I remember the, actually the day that Dad passed away. Like, I look back now and I think I, I wish I could have been there in the house and been there for my mum, but I think as an 18-year-old, in that level of shock, I just needed to get out of the house. I needed to be away from there. I needed to be away from the place where he took his life. And I had a friend that came and picked me up as soon as I called him and took me into town and we went and saw some friends. And it was such a surreal experience because I remember being at this birthday party for one of my guy friends and looking around, everyone's happy and laughing and I felt like I was in a movie or I was in some sort of soap drama where everyone's having this great time. Nobody understands that my dad has taken his life mm. and I'm trying to keep it all together and act like I'm just there for the party and everything's great. And I just had this complete breakdown with one of my friends because I think he said, well, what's new in your life? Like, what, what have you been up to today? Mm. And then I just lost it. But I did have those friends who would come and pick me up or I would go into town and meet them. and Or I had friends who would just call me and just we'd just chat and sometimes they'd just make silly jokes and make me laugh and just teaching me to take life a little bit less seriously during those times. That was what I needed. Since 2005... Over 84,000 veterans have taken their own lives, and it's something that here we're really focused on. And I know that's something you're focused on. Would you care to touch upon some of your thoughts about the stigma of males seeking mental health treatment? Mm. Those figures that you just gave, just so tragic. It's this ongoing battle where we're trying to teach people that it's okay to not feel okay all the time and it's okay to reach out for help. We still have these growing numbers of suicide epidemic around the world, including with, with a lot of men. And that's obviously I saw that play out in my own life and I remember my mum telling me that many times she tried to encourage dad to go and get help and he, he just said it was weak. You know, he wasn't gonna go see a therapist, he wasn't he wouldn't even take some something natural, like any kinds of natural supplements because he felt like if he addressed in any way that he was struggling or had mental health issues and needed help, then that was automatically a failure. And I know that there are so many other men around the world who feel that way as well. My book, Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day, I made it a real priority to have an equal representation of male and female voices in that first book because I knew that we need to hear those voices from men. I mean, we need to hear them from male and female, but specifically men because they still have this ingrained sense that if they speak out for help, it means that they've failed. Mm. They're failing themselves, they're failing their partners, their parents, their families, their children. It is a never-ending battle in the field of suicide prevention and particularly with men. But I do know that we are making a difference, all of us, with what you're doing and what I'm doing and, and millions of others. Unfortunately, it is going to be a never-ending battle that we have to rage against, but... Right. I do believe that we are 
changing lives. Okay. And we, we will help a lot of people in the process. Agreed. So as you were entering into adulthood, in the book you described how coming an adult seemed very frightening and makes a ton of sense for a young person who sees adults who may be out of control or volatile or frightening. I would see how adulthood could be a troubling concept to the child as the child progressed toward adulthood, wondering, you know, what becomes of life when you become an adult. So as you dealt with all of this, 18 years old, you're dealing with some complex trauma. Will you walk us through that transition that you made into adulthood? And as you became a young woman and began to have relationship and started to build trust with other people, will you help us understand how you navigated all those things as a young adult? I spent so many years being, you know, the good kid. So many years of, of trying to be a really good daughter and always trying to do really well at school. And when I finished school, I, I still had that mindset, but suddenly I was meeting all of these people who had very different upbringings to me and I lived quite a sheltered upbringing in terms of my schooling. I went to private Christian school so I didn't really know a lot about the outside world if you want to call it that and suddenly like I'm 18 years old and I'm working and I'm meeting all these people with very different backgrounds to me and people who maybe weren't living their healthiest lives. I was around some really great people but also around some people who weren't very healthy. It's interesting because even though I had very little self-worth in some ways. I was incredibly resilient when it came to what my morals were and what my boundaries were and things that I did and didn't want to do. So, you know, for example, I, I was around a lot of people who did drugs and that was never something I wanted to do. And no matter how many times people asked, I was always able to say, no, nah, it's not me. I don't care if you peer pressuring me, I'm just not interested. So it's interesting because I was able to be so strong with things like that, but then when it came to relationships, I would just let people walk all over me in some way. You know, because of relationship I'd had with my dad and not having a strong role model, and this is something we see with many young women who've not had healthy relationships with their fathers, is that we tend to gravitate towards relationships that aren't very healthy because we're constantly seeking that father figure, that male role model that we didn't have. And so for me, I was just so desperate to be loved. I was going out all the time with friends and drinking and meeting lots of new people. And I would always tend to gravitate towards these guys who were very charming, showed me a lot of adoration, which was something I wasn't used to having. And they were all emotionally unavailable and, and not the sort of men that you wanted as a partner. But for me, I was just like, maybe somebody who will love me, you know, somebody who cares for me, someone who's saying nice things about me. So it didn't take very much for me to fall in love with someone. If they said something kind or they showed me a little bit of interest, I was just in. It was like hook, line and sinker. Because as I said, I didn't have any positive male role models to build that foundation from to know what to look for. And so that led me into dating and, and hanging around a series of guys who didn't have my best interests at heart. One of those guys I was friends with and, and sort of dated on and off for about 18 months. And I thought that he was the one guy who really got me. Looking back, there were a ton of red flags that I just completely missed. They were waving at me and I was just covering my eyes and just walking past. I was like, no, everything's fine. You know, he's, he's just had a hard life. I can fix him. He, you know, he just needs someone to stand by him. And 
I had my mom and friends saying, he's trash, like stay away from him. Hmm. But I was just so focused on, well, maybe I can change him and I can be the one to, to show him what he's worth. And he knows what I've been through and he obviously cares about me. So he's, he's one of the good ones. And in reality, what he did was spend 18 months building up my trust telling me all the while that he would never hurt me and that I could trust him and all these things. And, yeah, after 18 months, he sexually assaulted me one night. And I think that was really my rock-bottom moment because I suddenly realised it was just so many layers of trauma. Like, this was someone I thought I could trust after everything I'd been through. Betrayed my trust in the worst possible way. And, and I just couldn't really come to grips with that at the time. And on top of that... After the assault, I tried to talk to him about it because in the moment, and I know one of your other guests, Renee Michelle's talked about this. She's a friend of mine as well. When you are going through something like sexual assault or some sort of violence, I did what Renee talks about, which is freeze. You know, people don't often understand that response because for me, what was happening didn't make any sense. You know, he just spent 18 months telling me he would never overstep my personal boundaries or things that I was or wasn't ready for. He'd said he would never hurt me. So it was like I was watching it happen, but feeling like this isn't actually happening, like this can't be happening. Mm. And because of that, I experienced a lot of guilt and trauma as well because I thought, well, I, I didn't fight back. I didn't scream. I didn't say no. I just lay there watching it happen, not being able to actually defend myself. It was just awful and I couldn't understand what was actually happening. And he knew very clearly that this he was overstepping the boundaries and he knew that I wasn't okay with what was happening and he at no point asked, is this okay for us to take this step? And then after all of that, he also gaslighted me as well. He tried to tell me that what I remembered happening didn't actually happen and so the whole experience just created so much more trauma on top of everything else that I had already been dealing with. In addition to all this, also you had a medical problem that also compounded things. So you've been through tons of challenges and what i find to be amazing with you is you found in writing something where you're able to give voice to your feelings your emotions so you are able to give something of immense value to others the way that you write and the way that you tell these stories of resilience you can find that within yourself but then you also do it for others to empower them in your book you interviewed a number of different people and tell their story of resilience and perseverance and getting through immense challenges. And I love the bravery of just go into the hardest things there are and get to the bottom of understanding it and affirming each person. In your book, you write, I began thinking about all I'd achieved during the last few years and how ironic that I had once believed the world would be better off without me in it. Will you share a little bit about when you, you realized the value of surviving all of these things that you'd experienced, was it a gradual process or was there kind of an aha moment um, or were there multiple ones where you just realized that you have immense value and that you having gone through all of these awful things only made you more able to connect, to positively impact people, to provide a listening that's non-judgmental, that can help people transition their own uh, adversity into things that are positive. Was that a gradual or sudden moment for you? Yeah, I think it was a number of those things. Definitely gradual. It definitely wasn't an overnight thing. That's something that I share often with audiences. Is I didn't go from you know, a suicidal teenager to being now a published author who 
helps people write their books overnight. Like, it's a very gradual process, right. and there were multiple moments of revelation over the years. I think the first moment of crawling out of that rock-bottom moment was in the months after the assault where I just knew I had to get on with life. So at that point, it was surviving, just moving forward. Shortly afterwards, I was very, very blessed to go into an incredibly supportive and loving relationship that really did hit the reset button for me because it showed me over and over that I was able to trust again. So that relationship was really healing for me. And then as the years went on, I think I was still kind of just drifting through life. But by that stage, I felt as a human being, I deserved love and I deserved respect and all of those things. So I was able to stand up for myself more in terms of what I needed from a relationship or from friends. But I was still just drifting through life. I didn't have any goals. I wasn't really interested in setting any goals because as my childhood had shown me, every time I got my hopes up about something, they would be quickly broken down. So I still had that mindset of there's no point in making long-term goals because it probably won't work out and I'll just end up being disappointed. So I think the moment everything changed was I made a decision to move away from my hometown and that meant ending sort of long-term relationship I'd been in that was a really great and healthy relationship that I knew that I needed something more in life. I needed to try and find some sense of direction and purpose. And so I ended up moving into state about four hours away from home and I remember I saw this festival it was like a, it was like a music and arts and sort of social issues type festival and they were opening up positions for a volunteer photojournalist and I'd been working as a photographer for years I had my degree in creative writing but I had no idea what I wanted to do so I thought well this is perfect I'll, I'll take this volunteer position and just see what happens and taking the time off to go and do that volunteer position meant that I was actually fired from the job that I was working at that time. <laughs> so it was interesting because I got fired from my job to go and do something for free. But that moment and that action of taking that risk for myself actually propelled me into my future career. <laughs> so as I was volunteering and doing this photojournalism work, I started to really get a clear sense of what I liked writing about because at that stage I had zero idea what I wanted to do with my degree. And I found out that I was really passionate about issues like human trafficking. And so over that weekend I was writing about an incredible organization called Destiny Rescue who do work um, primarily in Southeast Asia and learning about the, the realities that so many children over there face with, with trafficking and exploitation. And I thought, this is something that I want to write about. So it's not something that everybody maybe feels strong enough to write about or maybe it's a little bit too scary or it seems a bit taboo. But that was really fascinating to me. So I started to write about issues like that. And over the next couple of years, I just threw myself into volunteering, going to gigs and doing music reviews going to art events and panel discussions, just trying as many different things as I could. And, you know, I've heard people say sometimes, oh, you know, I feel like I've just tried too many things. I'm always trying different things and it's probably not very good. And I'm like, no, it's amazing. Like, that's one of the best things you can do for yourself is to, is to try as many different things as you can so you get a really clear perspective of what you actually love in life and what drives you and what motivates you. Spent about three years or three and a half years 
doing volunteer work in my spare time while working full-time in jobs that I really hated, but, you know, I was hoping that eventually I would get my foot in the door as a writer somewhere. And, yeah, that, that moment eventually came, and that was 2015, and I think that was the moment where I felt finally like I had something to give to the world. It was mm. that validation I was looking for that, Yes, somebody wants to hire you to actually do this thing that, that you love doing, which is writing. And I was working as an assistant magazine editor, and, and that was a real confirmation for me. And then I think, again, I had another sort of aha moment, which was in 2016, after I'd been made redundant, and as, as you tend to do when, you know, you're laid off work or things don't go to plan and you have a lot of time to um, sit and think, I was thinking, well, what do I want to do? with my life now, what direction do I want to take it in? Is, is there something that is unique to me as a person that could be of value to someone else? And that was really the moment that inspired me to create my book and to start finding people all over the world who'd, who'd also gone through challenging times and using my experience of living through some really, really tough things and losing my dad to suicide to talk about this issue and, and open it up to people around the world who either struggling in silence or have lost a loved one or just don't know how to have those conversations. You write in your book, I wanted to use the power of storytelling to show others, no matter their struggle, that they weren't alone, that their life is worth so much more than they might believe right now. For those who are listening who may be in the thick of tremendous confusion and pain that results from trauma, will you share how important it is to recognize the impermanence of experiences, how thoughts and emotions come and go, and how things can change significantly over time if we don't give up and keep getting up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you just said it so beautifully then. You know, these, these dark times, they come and go. When you're in the moment, it can feel like it's going to be forever. Like, I know how suffocating it feels to be in that fog of depression and anxiety and those suicidal thoughts thinking nothing's ever going to change. But the message that I share through my work is every one of us has gone through something tough in our lives. Every single one of us has a story to share. And as dark as life gets and as bad as things may be presently, things absolutely can get better. Those dark times, they never last forever. And that's something that I've had to really tell myself over and over in those really hard times to get through. It's just understanding that this too shall pass. And I, I don't know if it's going to be an overnight thing or if it's going to take a long time, but it will pass. I will get through this. And life is really just about putting one foot in front of the other and making a conscious decision every day to live one more day and then doing it again the next day and the next day and the next day. And when you do that, eventually you will find that light at the end of the tunnel and you will find your reason to live. And I stress this so much, like I'm not saying there's a magic fix, it won't happen overnight, but if you keep going, you will find your way out of that tunnel. And there are so many of us who have walked this journey and we know what it's like and we want to support you. So the worst thing you can do for yourself is to struggle with that pain on your own and to live in silence. But the best thing you can do is to reach out to someone. Pick someone that you know is a supporter of yours, whether it's a friend or whether it is you know, a professional and counsellor or a GP, whoever it might be. Go to someone that you know has your best interest at heart and will listen to you. And if you do reach out and somebody doesn't give you the empathy and the understanding and the support that you deserve, please don't give up. Please go to someone else. Keep going until you find someone 
that can support you through these dark times because you do have value even if you can't see it right now and you do matter. One of those key components to getting people through these difficult times is communication. You know, to, to share our thoughts and feelings and experiences with other people and in return experiencing those same things from them to have our voices heard and valued without judgment causes us to make progress toward flourishing and thriving. We learn this way. We experience a sense of personal value through that process. It's a kinship or an acceptance. We learn what we're ashamed of, what we feel bad about, what we feel good about, the sense of circumstances that make us feel proud, happy, grateful, or appreciative. When you use your skill at communication and writing and interviewing people to help awaken within them that value, how pleasurable is that for you as you meet people who have been through tremendous adversity to help awaken that within them after everything you've been through it seems like it's like a compound awakening it's like you are using your gifts and talents and purpose to find the brilliance within you and you're doing it in a way where you're profoundly opening the brilliance within them will you share a little bit about that act of service that you do you know will you share a little bit of the joy of that, of, of your satisfaction in that and how you may have never conceived of doing that when you were very depressed. Oh, absolutely. Like you said, you just can't put a price on that feeling. I mean, the things that I went through, I thought they were so dark and so, you know, depressing and awful that I would never talk about them. You know, I didn't think anyone would want to. But every day when I'm working with different clients to help them write their own books, it's just like when we finish their their chapters or their books and they say to me things like, Daz, I didn't know anyone else got this. Or, you know, I had a client who said, I recently emerged from a 10-year abusive relationship with, with my self-esteem basically in tatters. And she was like... I feel like meeting you has been one of my greatest blessings because being part of your writing program and, and learning how to write my story has shown me that I do have value in this world and that I have something to share that can help other people. And she was like, now feel I can do more with my life as well and I have all these plans and for the future and I have these books that I want to write and these messages that I want to get out with my work. And she's like, I feel like I can do that now because through the power of, of writing my own story, I've been able to, to break through that shame and, and see how far I've come. When I have people say things like that to me, it just, it blows me away. And I never take it for granted or take it lightly. Mm. I feel like for those of us who've been able to not only survive our pain, but find a way to thrive, like one of the most joyful things or the most you know purposeful things we can do with that is to give back to other people and to take them by the hand and lead them through this pain and show them that there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And, yeah, for me, writing has been an incredible tool for breaking through shame and depression. Even if it's something as simple as doing a bit of gratitude journaling at the end of the day, sometimes people think, oh, well, you know, I'd, I'd love to write a book, but, you know, I'm not a, a great writer. And I'm like, well, just start with <laughs> doing a bit of journaling. You know, even psychologists recommend journaling as a form of a therapy for their clients. And the, the benefits are just so immense. 
But, you know, above all, I, I do believe we all have a story to share. And when we do find that little bit of courage within us to open up and be vulnerable, share our stories, I feel like that's when we start to take control of our lives. And in the process, we help so many other people as well. So it's a beautiful thing for me and I, I love being able to do what I do. And yeah, meeting so many incredible other people in the process. Yeah. It's stunning how the pain we feel often becomes, if we persevere, if we stick with it, if we keep going, the very things that were the most painful for us have the potential to become some of our most powerful absolutely. acts in our life. You find that too? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I was doing an interview recently and somebody said something about, something very similar to that about, or well, how do you feel about the things that you've been through now? And I said, I'm actually, I'm actually really good with my past. Like, I know for a lot of people, they hold on to that trauma and they don't know how to let it go because it's so deeply embedded within their identity. And for me, it is part of my identity, but not in that negative victim sort of mindset. I mean, for me, it's now part of my identity as someone who's thriving and who's helping others. And yeah, I mean, I look back at everything I've gone through and I think, well, if I had a really easy upbringing... I don't know what I'd be doing right now. Maybe I'd just be working in a boring job that paid well, but I hated it, you know. <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't be the creative person that I am today. And I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to be a part of so many people's lives and help them find their purpose in healing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all good with my past. I don't look at it in a negative way or think, I wish I didn't go through that. I've come out the other side and I've catapulted myself so far from there now that I, I just look at these things from, from the filter of how can I use this to give my life purpose and how can I use it to give someone else's life purpose. I always end the show with six quick questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Definitely. Who are you thankful for today? And now that we've covered who you're thankful for, what are you thankful for today? That I have a voice and that I'm able to use my experience and a lot of really tough things that I've gone through to help many other people around the world. How do you fuel the fire within you? By listening to great podcasts, keeping healthy, nourishing myself with good food, and probably through writing. That's another big one. What is one thing adversity taught you to value? They taught me to value that we each have a very unique life purpose and it's just about finding it. And through that adversity, you can actually do things with your life that are greater than maybe you ever deemed possible. What are you doing today you may have never thought you could? Doing a podcast with, with you. <laughs> Someone in the United States who values it so perfectly aligned with mine. I never thought I'd be doing international podcasts. So, yeah, it's very, very amazing. And what will you do tomorrow that you may have never thought you could? Well, last night's in book, so every day there's new opportunities coming and I'm preparing to release my second book, so that's something I'll be working on tomorrow that I, in the past, didn't think would ever happen. Every, every day is exciting and every day I jump out of bed and wonder what's, what's going to happen next and what I'm going to do today. How can people learn more about you and your work? 
They can jump on jazzrawlinson.com, J-A-S-R-A-W-L-I-N-S-O-N.com, and that's where you can find copies of my book, Reasons to Live, or if you've been thinking about writing your own book and you need a bit of help and guidance to get it done, you can jump on there and get in contact with me to talk more as well.